0: Morning. Good
1: morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. I am Welcome to Grand Rounds uh, for Wednesday, October fifteenth, twenty fourteen, and uh, we have a banner crowd today there's lots of people lined up to get in here but Dr. Nordgren has multiple slides are going to get us kicked off on time a couple of quick announcements uh, celebratory announcements and kudos last night uh, some of us were able to uh, be in attendance as Jim Sargent was installed as the inaugural uh, uh, Lisa and Scott Stewart professor in pediatric oncology at the Cancer Center an endowed position which is really a, a wonderful <laughs> honor for someone we know is spectacular. And so, if you get the chance to see Jim, uh, Alan Rizicki was there and was, was thanked as well, and so was Diane and others. Um, so, if you get a chance to, to, to see Jim, uh, congratulate him on uh, another honor. He announced the formation, he announced his intention to form a COOP Institute on, um, uh, on risk behaviors and global health which will clearly be right up our alley in pediatrics and is very consistent with our speech, uh, our talk for today on obesogenic diets and (coughs) consumptive personality. So, and then on Friday, for those who might have a chance, an auditorium G at Chilcot Auditorium, uh, Geisel School of Medicine, Dartmouth Medical School, is having its first Outstanding Career Achievement Awards. And two of the honorees are, are near and dear to our hearts, Dr. Sam Katz, who many of you know, as a emeritus chair of pediatrics at Duke and a longstanding friend of our department, and John Maudlin and others here, we'll be here at between 3 and 5 o'clock upstairs in G. And Hardy Hendren, one of the founding fathers of pediatric surgery at Dartmouth Grad, will also, I don't know how much they'll be speaking, but if you have a chance to at least say hi, Dr. Katz will be around the department as well midday. So that was more than I promised, Julia, but Sholene um, Nett is going to give uh, Julia Norgren an appropriate introduction.
0: So it is my great pleasure to introduce my good friend Julian Nordgren. She did her undergrad work at Bates and then came to Dartmouth to do her medical school, um, where I just became an acquaintance with her, but she was too glamorous to approach. She went off um, for a year at Brown, but then <coughs> saw the light and came back and did her, the rest of her residency at Dartmouth, where we became very good friends. She went on to work, um, she actually did a chief year here first and then went on to work as a general pediatrician, but realized that her longstanding passion for cooking and her growing understanding that food and lifestyle really affect not only family health, but children's health, she knew that she had to pursue um, something further. She was working with the hyperlipidemia clinic and working with obese children. Uh, But went off to the very prestigious California Institute of, I mean, the Culinary Institute of America in California, where uh, between drinking delicious wine, she graduated with honors and is now not only Dr. Julia but Chef Julia Norgren. So we welcome her back back home to speak to us, even though I think Connecticut might be home now. (laughs)
2: Well, good morning, thank you so much for having me. Am I mic'd and can everyone hear me? Well, okay. Well, good morning, it's so great to be here. It's so great to see so many um, really wonderful, lovely and familiar faces, and I'm just delighted to be asked to be here. Um, As Sholene mentioned, I really have come to believe over my life experience and my experience as a pediatrician um, that food is really so critical um, and lifestyle is so critical to raising healthy children. And we are in a really, really tricky spot with the food environment that we're living in. So I really wanna just talk about that and things I've learned along the way. I have a lot of slides, but hopefully a lot of them are all pictures. So um, I wanna give you a visual tour of some of the things that um, we experience out there. I do have disclosures. Um, I do work as a, I develop recipes for the National Peanut <laughs> Board, and I also teach um, a cooking classes at King Arthur Flour. I teach employee wellness classes. Um, So I don't know if that's really a conflict, but those are things that I do in addition to the other things. So as everyone's getting ready and drinking their coffee, I wanted to start with one of my favorite stories about seeing patients. Um, I was in clinic at the Cholesterol Treatment Center and I was talking to this woman and her daughter and these were lovely, lovely mom, lovely daughter, both overweight, both struggling. And the mom is talking to me and so she's talking to me like this, she has a cup and she is like, Doctor I am so frustrated, I just can't lose weight, I am trying everything, I don't know what it is, I'm trying so hard, I'm eating salad, I'm trying to exercise, I just don't know what's going on. And I looked at her and I was like, I'm sorry, but could I see your coffee cup? She, and she, she did this, she said, oh no, no. She said, I work with Alzheimer's patients, don't take my coffee. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to take your coffee. But what I noticed is this little writing that you sometimes see on the Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I don't know if you guys have seen this. And this isn't to call out Dunkin' Donuts in particular, but what what it said here was 8C, 8S. And I was like, can you just tell me what that, does that mean what I think it means? Is that eight creams and eight sugars? And she says, oh yes, I have to have it that sweet because I get the hazelnut, and it's really bitter unless I put eight creams and eight sugars in it. <laughs> and I was like, wow. So fortunately, she was about to see the dietitian, but I said to her, you know, I just wonder out loud, what is one cream? What is one sugar? And she's like, I don't know. I just, you know, I was like, I don't have any sense. But there might be a lot of hidden calories in that coffee. Let's let's look into it. So she went up to the dietitian, and I looked on DunkinDonuts.com because you can you have access to this nutritional information. But nowhere could I find what was the sugar according to Dunkin' Donuts and what was one cream. And I tried to deduce by looking at the calories and the fat content from a cream with coffee, a cream I mean a coffee with cream or in a coffee without cream. And I got so confused, so I called the Dunkin' Donuts hotline. <laughs> so I call them up and I say I just need help, I have a patient and I really I need to help her figure out what's in her coffee. And I said, can you tell me what cream, what one cream and one sugar? And she says, I can't tell you that. And I was like, you can't tell me what one sugar, like what is one sugar to Dunkin' Donuts? And what she said is, they're all independently owned and operated, um, but what I can tell you is that it's um, it's really dependent. And the truth is that I've gone to many Dunkin' Donuts since then and it really isn't dependent. Of course it's standardized. And so, what, what, so I had to really find out what was in her coffee. And, one sugar is actually two teaspoons of sugar. So when you have two teaspoons of sugar from Dunkin' Donuts, that's 16. Uh, sorry, that's eight grams of sugar. Um, and when you have a cream, it's uh, it's heavy cream, and it's a tablespoon of cream. It's not a teaspoon. And so when we really looked at what was in her coffee, she had six grams. So she had 48 grams of fat. <laughs> So she had 416 calories worth of fat in her coffee and 64 grams of sugar. So a total of 240 calories of sugar. And so she was drinking 656 calories in her drink. And the point I really wanna drive home with this story is that she had no idea. And it took me as a trained physician with a great understanding in nutrition it took me hours to figure out from not only calling, going on their website, and actually physically going to Dunkin Donuts and saying, can you put one sugar in? I want to measure it and see how much it is. Um, that's a lot of work to understand what's in your food, and there are a lot of things that are really out there that are hurting us. So today what I want to talk about, again, is just what is, what's going on in our food environment and what are some of these challenges. Um, I want to describe a little bit about what information is available to help us sort through this world. And then at the end, I want to really talk about strategies. So how can you really help parents get the sound information that they need to really affect their daily choices? Because it's really what it's about. It's not about what you know in your mind, but what you put on your plate. So hopefully, I can help bridge that gap a little bit in terms of what we really understand as scientists and how we feed our kids. Um, These are the written learning objectives. So hopefully, at the end, you'll be able to do all of these things. Um, read a food label or at least know a little bit more about the food label than you did when you came in. Um, think about one strategy you can use to improve your own diet and then discuss one strategy that you can use and employ in your daily practice to improve the quality of your patient's diet or that of their family. So I love this the slide I took in my local grocery store. To me this is so emblematic of what it's like to just move through the world. I'm going into my grocery store with my cart and I physically had to move my cart around this candy display to actually get into the store. And when you're a mom and you have kids with you, you can imagine what they're gonna ask when you're walking by or into this candy display. And it just, this display was so emblematic for me of all that sort of gets in the way of us trying to feed our children healthfully and this is what our world has become and I think when you see these slides what I want you to understand is we're really up against this incredible food industry that is working hand in hand with the grocery stores to sell product and they are selling sugar, salt and fat over and over and over again packaged in many different ways, sugar, salt, fat and it's really taking a toll on the health of our children. So I just, navig- I just wanna show you a little bit about uh, my world. This is going to the bank, and I can tell you if you let your kid once have a lollipop at the bank, <laughs> every single time, you like, Mommy, can I have a lollipop? And it's frustrating. Same thing happens in the drive-thru, as you probably know. Oh, this is my son. This is a soccer tournament this past weekend, actually. He is an awesome soccer player. This is after his fourth game in two days, and to congratulate the boys on a job well done, not only did they get these great medals, but they got, I don't know if you can see in his hand, those Rice Krispie treat bars. (laughs) And it's like, what happened to the orange slices? Um, So much of the time we're using treats to celebrate things, and not that they weren't able to burn off those calories, but that's not where it ended. Uh, This is a little um, in the distance, but this is at the tournament, so you know, all the tournaments are gonna have their bake sales, they're gonna be selling cookies, but there's an ice cream truck here at soccer. And in our soccer, in our town, every time a soccer game gets out, the ice cream truck pulls up. And it's so frustrating. You just wanna get out of there, you just wanna celebrate the great accomplishments, you just wanna leave, and instead, you're often left in um, You're left with a kid in tears or grumpy because you're not gonna get the ice cream and everyone else gets to have ice cream. But I'm not alone in this problem. This is Britney Spears. I finally have something in common with Britney Spears, getting her son an ice cream after soccer. (laughs) She caved. Um, This is a drugstore. Drugstores, again, if you really walk through a drugstore, they're not selling Tylenol, Advil anymore. Well, they are, but they're also Really selling so much sugar, um, and I love this is a this drugstore. They advertise they're at the corner of happy and healthy. <laughs> um, this is Best Buy, since when is Best Buy in the sugar industry? So this is me trying to leave Best Buy, and if you see um, if you see that barrier, you physically can't walk out of the store without walking face on into a Coke display. And notice there's no water in that, so all you're looking at is sugary sodas. And then you have to take a right turn, and then you have to walk by this long line of beautiful, beautifully packaged junk food. And then, of course, there is the um, there's getting trying to get through the cereal aisle, which is another story altogether. <laughs> So it really should come as no surprise that we're having a lot of problems. This is a world that's become very, very difficult to live in. Um, I know we're all concerned about obesity rates. I know we've seen those slides a lot. So um, diabetes rates, I know that we're all really have a lot of concern about. um, This is a JAMA article um, that came out recently. 30% increase in type 2 diabetes in youth between 2001 and 2009. Anybody who's taken a careful diet history of kids or or works in the um, nutrition field here, we see this all the time, but it's interesting to see it sort of um, in study form. So the current reality, nearly 40% of the total energy consumed by children aged two to 18 is calories with no nutritive value. And that's really a sad reality for me. Daily sugar intake, two to 18 year olds, 365 calories. So think of almost 400 calories every day just of added sugar and over 400 calories on average from daily fat. So these are foods that aren't adding towards supporting health, supporting cellular function, supporting good growth and development. These are just added on top of everything else that kids are eating. Salt, we don't talk a lot about salt, but the more I sort of look look at food labels and the more I read about salt. Salt is um, a wonderful thing, it's a preservative, it's a flavor enhancer. As a chef, I use salt, no doubt about it. Um, but it's the, sh- the salt that I use to season food or to add to my pot of boiling water so that my vegetables have flavor, um, it's nothing compared to the kind of salt that can get infused into these processed food products. Um, so again, it should be no surprise that these kids moving through this world and eating these um, products that are marketed to them their daily sodium intake is estimated at, uh, at 3,279 milligrams of sodium, um, and this is actually very recent. This is from last month. Um, it's interesting to see a little bit where that comes from, and it's a lot. It's from the store foods, processed foods, fast food, pizza, of course, school cafeterias, and actually on the weekdays the data was different, and 26% of a student uh, child sodium intake came from school cafeterias and five percent from other restaurants. And so again, we haven't talked a lot about salt, but I think that's become going to become a very major player in the types of diseases that we're seeing, not only diabetes, but hypertension and heart disease in the kids that we're raising today on processed food. So preschoolers, 85 percent of children consume some type of sweetened beverage, dessert, sweet or salty snack in a day. which isn't surprising, um, but it also is a stark contrast to how many fruits and vegetables, and I'll have that slide coming up in a bit. Um, and sugar intake, and we talk about sugar, um, and I'll talk a little more specifically about sugar, but the current sugar intake, um, 12 teaspoons of added sugar for one to three-year-olds, and you can imagine that. You would never take a cup and add 12 teaspoons of sugar and give it to a one to three-year-old. It's everywhere, and it's hard to avoid, and the sugar load is just intolerable to these kids. Uh, Four to eight years is uh, an average of 21 teaspoons of added sugar per day. Um, And then the highest, of course, is the adolescent males, and of course we see these adolescent males, I run into them, Skiing at Pats Peak when they're eating Skittles and drinking the uh, Mountain Dew or chocolate milk and having a big cookie so they can really pack in the, uh, and those are the guys that are up to 136 grams a day. And so again, vegetables, 25% of children at 27 months don't eat any vegetables daily. And of those that do, um, most of that are potatoes, um, french fries and other potatoes, <laughs> so depressing. So, what I want to impress upon you is that when you look at a parent, or you have people in your clinic, or you're, you're trying to work on this issue, feeding a child healthfully, it, it feels like you're this salmon, you're just swimming upstream, you have to fight against so many other forces that are moving against you. Not only the, the food environment, and I haven't even talked about setting foot in a restaurant, you try to order your child a healthy meal at a restaurant, it's almost impossible. Um, so I think that there's a lot that we can do to really support parents and help them get through this world and really encourage them to get on the right path and feeding their children. But it is not easy to feed a kid healthfully. It's not intuitive. People aren't born knowing these things. And again, I get back to this woman. You would think that she would understand that eight creams and eight sugars is a lot, but she didn't. And you're not born knowing these things. You're not born knowing how to feed your child healthfully. Um, and the messaging that you're getting from our culture, from the media, is all of this processed, packaged food is the norm when it really shouldn't be. So I just want to say again, it's um, it's difficult. It's also not inexpensive. It's generally cheaper to buy processed food for your kids than it is to make it yourself. But by doing that, we're really when we outsource the feeding of our children, we're paying a very dear cost in terms of the health of our kids. So. What do we have to really help us understand what is out there? We've got some food we've got food labels. I'll talk to you a little bit about that. Um, we have online, you can get information for restaurants and um, standard, standard menu items. So if you go to Uno's, for example, you can find out what is the nutritional information in a kid's dinner or an adult's dinner, and it's pretty alarming. Um, and there's also the Nuval system, and I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's um, it's in some grocery stores. It's not everywhere. Um, but I'll talk a little bit about what the Nuval system does. So you've all seen this. This is a food label. This actually is pulled right from the FDA website. And when I really started investigating about what is the information that you can get from a food label, i learned a lot. I never knew, for example, that it's sort of organized, and I say, sort of organized in a way to help guide your decisions. So what I didn't realize, because they're of course not color coded on a package, um, but there is some order to the ingredients and how you should look at it. Um, So of course at the top is um, serving size, and then amount per serving, so calories and calories from fat, and then in the yellow are things that you're supposed to limit. Now I didn't realize that. It's set up this way, things you're supposed to limit and things that you're supposed to get more of. But here it is. Um, so limiting fats and sodium. And then moving down to things that you're supposed to get more of, so vitamins and minerals. So there's a couple important things that I want you to know about the food label. This is the, These are based on the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, which are written every five years. The last one was in 2010, so we're due for a new Dietary Guidelines in 2015. These guidelines only apply to ages two and up. So this does not apply to a one-year-old, this does not apply to an infant. This is based on a 2,000 calorie diet. There are no one-year-olds or two-year-olds or probably even three-year-olds that should be eating 2,000 calories a day. It's too much. So these, when you're looking at a food label and you're thinking about a preschooler, none of these numbers really apply, I any mean, of these percentages. Are going to be off so you really have to keep that in mind when you're looking at something like a packaged snack that's absolutely meant for kids the nutrition label is not meant for kids Um, the other thing I want to point out is um, when you look at sugar there's no percent daily value so when you're trying to figure out how much is too much you don't get any guidance from the food label which is you know, really intended to be a big public health initiative to educate consumers about what's in their food, but we've really fallen down in terms of being able to give a concrete recommendation about how much sugar. So when you look at sugar and you say five grams, how do you know what that is? Is that a lot? Is that a little? And the fact is that there's no great consensus on what is too much and um, what should limit be, and I'll talk about that in a second. The other thing is grams. We don't really think in grams. What is five grams? Most people I found don't know that in one teaspoon of sugar is four grams. So I find that the teaspoon is a really important tool to help people understand because that's something we can all relate to. It makes sense that you wouldn't want to take this cup and put 12 teaspoons in it and give it to your child. Um, But if you see it 48 grams, who knows? Serving size is also um, something really important to pay attention to and I think that we've all looked at a serving and when you look at it, it's like, for real, this is what happened to me, I was on vacation, I get some, like, Haagen-Dazs ice cream and it's nicer when you have the pint because it's you, sort of a half a cup and you're like, well, maybe I'm having half a cup, maybe not, maybe more. <laughs> so when I got this, I'm like, oh, it's so teeny, it's probably like a quarter of a serving. Well, of course not, this is one serving. So this is 3.6 ounces and so a regular Haagen-Dazs is four ounces of the serving when you look at how much sugar and fat and calories, and it's just so sad. I mean, it's hardly anything in here, this tiny little thing, but it's 220 calories, 130 calories of fat, 18 grams of sugar. It felt like they really packed a lot into this tiny little thing, it's so delicious. Um, And that's why really watching your portion sizes, it's so important. And it's funny, I get a lot of questions from my friends. They're often surprised to see me. We have a local ice cream place called Ashley's. And um, so when I see friends, it's like this big um, scandal. Like, oh my God, Julia is bringing her kids to ice cream. (laughs) And um, so yes, I eat ice cream. I bring my kids to eat ice cream. And what I've decided my philosophy about ice cream is that I'm always sad when the ice cream cone is gone. So I'd rather have a reasonable portion and be able to do it a little more frequently and be able to enjoy it we get the kid's size, we all get one scoop, we are all we would all eat more, we would all want more, but just limiting it just allows us to feel good about it and not feel sick when we're done. So that's how we manage our ice cream, and even though it's sad to see how much uh, fat and calories are in it. So there's a system that was developed, I don't know if you're, is any, do you anybody know what the NuVal system is? Have you seen it out and about? Okay, so the NuVal system, the NuVal system, The. Um, developed by Dr. David Katz and a panel of researchers. And this was originally termed, you might have heard the term Anki, overall nutrition quality index. So the Anki score and the NuVal system, um, NuVal is a company and they mm-hmm. license their um, tools to various grocery stores. And what they do is they want to give very simple and direct information about nutritional quality of food. So they want, they, their goal is to distill it all down to one number. So if you have a butternut squash or a carrot, you've got um, a number that's high, and the scale is one to 100. So you look at your vegetables, Nuval score is gonna be 95, 100. Um, If you look at processed food, toaster pastries, you're gonna get a Nuval score of six. And so the intention is for it to be a very quick, you don't have to look at the food label, you don't have to do all this analyzing and weighing and measuring, and it's just one number. Um, David is a colleague of mine, so I was like, hey, can you tell me What's the, how do you figure out that number? How do you get at it? Well, I can't know the exact thing without a non-disclosure agreement. But he did send me his slide about the, uh, the algorithm. So basically, it's a numerator of things that are healthy and a denominator of things that are not healthy. Then there are all these various adjusters. So basically, the point is to really look carefully at each food in terms of what it gives you nutritionally and divide it by the harm it has for you in terms of things that we really need to be reducing in our diets. So you've got fiber, folate, vitamins, um, and then in your denominator, fat, sodium, sugar, and cholesterol, and then all these other weighted things. So I haven't used, it is in my grocery store, I don't use it a lot, although it actually does help. Um, I realized the taco kit that my kids like had an Anki score of like five. So we moved on to a different one, and and the reason was the the seasoning um, was so high in sodium. And so these are just little things that you can pay attention to. So locally, up here, um, this NuVal score is visible at Price Chopper, I think is the only store that is here now. So restaurants, um, I haven't talked yet a lot about restaurants. And this is something that really impressed upon me as um, in the culinary industry boy, restaurants are tricky, they're there to make money, they're there to sell food, they're, um, they don't make money off kids. And the kids aren't paying the bills. And so the food that's provided to the kids is really meant sort of for adults. There's a big um, push to deliver product that is familiar and um, comforting that kids will eat. And we've gotten to a place where we've set an expectation that there's a very narrow set of foods that are acceptable for kids in, in um, restaurants, which to me is so depressing. We, went to, we were on vacation and we went to a Thai restaurant and they had all this you know beautiful Thai food, masamon curry, pad thai, and then children's menu, chicken nuggets and fries. And I'm like, since when is that Thai? Um, so one thing I think that's positive and that people should make use of is that you can get a lot of nutritional guides online to the foods that you might be eating. I got this from um, Unos. And this is just a screenshot. This is just looking things up on my own computer. And what you want, what you want also want to pay attention to is the marketing that's done to parents and the photographing and the imagery. I and look at the imagery. They're showing you pictures. You see the vegetables. You see um, it, it looks like a healthy picture. The pepperoni is sort of off to the side a little bit. Um, but yet this food is just laden. This is a um, this is a kid's pizza. I mean, look at the serving size, the cat, 720 calories, the fat, and the sodium, 1,700 gram- milligrams of sodium. It's a lot. Um, so it's something that you can talk to parents about. And if they like to go to restaurants, there's, I think psychologically, it's really difficult to address the issue because parents want to go out and enjoy themselves and have a good time. But because this type of food is not as much special occasion as it is becoming the norm of our society, it's so important for parents to know what they're feeding their kids if they're going to have pizza a couple times a week. And you know, pizza's tough because it's everywhere, and it's always loaded with fat, loaded with salt, and um, loaded with calories. And so when we talk about calories, again, I just wanted to um, impress on you, and I talked about this a little bit, but this is a um, list of what calories kids should be eating. and so, it really is until you get to, you know, the really active 10-year-old, 11, 12-year-old that you really should be looking at a 200, 2,000 calories and above. Um, so, you always have to readjust when you're looking at food labels to account for the right number of calories. And I know I've talked about this before, but I just want to do a visual image when you're looking at these labels to really remember that one teaspoon of sugar is four grams. And I think that's become a really helpful tool in teaching parents because then they can really identify what things are higher than they want them to be in sugar. Um, The other thing that... Another thing about reading um, labels, so I think the labels are really helpful in determining added uh, sugar content, looking for excess calories and excess fat and sodium. Sugars can be a little tricky because they're naturally occurring um, sugars that aren't accounted for. You notice on the food label that there's not an extra space for added sugars, and that is something that's proposed to the food label, that they'll separate naturally occurring sugars from added sugars. And to illustrate my point, this is just milk, this is plain milk, so every time you just write one regular cup of milk, you're going to see 12 grams of sugar for um, the lactose component. This is not added sugar. So when you're looking at something that's meant for kids, like this organic chocolate sugar. So that helps you realize, okay, 22 grams, that's a lot of sugar. It's not all added sugars. Um, That's 10 grams of added sugar. That's still, you know, uh, two and a half teaspoons of added sugar per serving. But a lot of people don't know that, that you need to account for the lactose as well. And again, that comes into play where, um, when you're looking at yogurts and yogurts in particular, I've read a lot about yogurts in the food industry and um, especially I mean this is just a huge market for kids is uh, offering a food that parents perceive have a strong nutritional value and yet making it addictive and appealing to kids so things like Go-Gurt and Trix yogurt and the yogurt with the candy mix-ins, <laughs> boy, um, so yogurt is one thing to be really careful about and that's something that you can you know really use in your own life if you like to eat yogurt it's really watching out for Um, the amount of sugar that can be added into these these products. And again, just messaging, um, you know, (laughs) Pop-Tarts, there's really nothing about this that should be a breakfast food. But if you just look at the packages, like, they're, oh, it's made with fruit. It's seven vitamins and minerals. And this is what parents are up against when they're getting information. And this is the information that's facing them. They have to actually take the um, work to turn it around and see that, Boy, okay, Pop-Tarts have 19 grams of sugar, um, and actually that's more than Milano cookies. <laughs> we don't think about giving our kids cookies for breakfast, but maybe they're not much different. And food labeling is important when you're looking at juice, and ju- juice is a really, we could talk all day about juice, um, but juice is really tricky because it's another one of those products like yogurt that parents perceive as something that's healthy. I think we've actually, and there's actually good data to show that we've made a lot of headway in juice and we've really reduced the juice consumption and focused on um, quality of juices. Uh, but they're still loaded with sugar. This is the first time I've seen this. And actually the AAP does come down more strongly about a recommendation on of um, uh, juices than other things with sugar um, and limiting sugar to excuse me, limiting juice to four to six ounces per day, which is actually physically impossible. If you have a kid and you have a bottle of juice in the house, it's so hard to limit them. But this is the first time that I've seen um, a label that showed a distinction between how much a serving should be for kids versus an older child. So again, in terms of limiting sugars, I think we're all in a quandary of like, what, what should that really be? The American Heart Association is the only group that I've seen that's really given very clear recommendations on what our limits should be. So they looked at, based on um, discretionary spending accounts, sort of, if you have your calories per day and how much can be spent on um, items that don't have any added nutritional value. So they have come out to say three to five teaspoons of added sugar per day is absolutely more than enough for kids. Uh, It's really hard to do that. Um, but I think it's a good thing to think about. And it's a good thing to think about and talk to the families about is it helps in your mind to know what your goal is in order for you to get there. So, and also kids have higher nutrient needs. So they, their calories really should all be nutritive. They're growing, they're developing, their brains are being developed. I feel like oh, my at my age my brain's sort of done, you know, I have a little more spending area. But um, for the for children, they really should be having more of their more of their calories should be nutrient rich versus um, nutrient poor. So onto the current reality before I go into some suggestions. Um, We all know this, but it's scary, difficult information. 10% of infants and toddlers have high weight for length. 20% of children age two to five are overweight or obese. And I think what's really tricky is children who are obese at age six have a greater than 50% chance of being obese as adults. Um, And so this is a really vicious cycle and what I want to focus on um, in strategies is really how to help parents improve their diet, improve their parenting practice, and also give them some motivation to try to help break this cycle um, and the toxic environment that we're living in. So I want to shift gears and talk about, okay, well, what should we be eating? We know what to avoid, um, but how do we put that into reality? So this is my plate, which I think does a much better job than the pyramid that was awfully confusing, and it helps you really visualize what you should be eating. Um, but I actually prefer this version. This is from Harvard. And what I like about this is they're much more specific about the things that we should be eating. Um, healthy proteins and really looking towards fish, poultry, beans, and nuts, limiting red meat and cheese. And that's something that I think we don't do a lot of Is, um, is focusing on what are healthy proteins, plant-based proteins, <clears throat> more vegetables, the more the better, big variety, and water. Um, I wanna talk just very quickly about whole grains. I know we talk a lot about processed food, but sometimes it's hard to really know what that means unless, I love looking at this, um, this grain, of a, this kernel. And what I wanted to show in this slide is when you take a grain and you process it, and you pull away the outer fiber and the bran and the germ, you're left with a really starchy endosperm of that, which is really mostly just um, starch and very low in protein and nutrients. So, and just quickly, um, this is something that I learned from David Katz, um, I'm sorry, David Ludwig. So, when you look at a grain and why Harvard is so um, insistent on whole grains is when you eat an unprocessed grain your sugar level goes up much more slowly um, but if you're eating a refined grain and basically a refined starch really what you're eating is glucose molecules strung together that are going to be dissolved into um, uh, sugars is basically as soon as they hit your mouth and so by the time you eat a refined carbohydrate and it's in your stomach it's essentially the biologic equivalent of, of pure sugar um, and then this is just a showing your blood sugar with low versus high glycemic index foods, was just something that he's focused a lot of his research on and I would love to talk about it in another lecture. So what we really need to do is try to help our patients and help ourselves shift the balance of what we're eating to more healthy foods and really focusing on fruits and vegetables. Look at these, these beautiful foods, they're full of nutrients, and this is what we should be eating a lot more of. So how do we shift the balance from our kids who are eating a lot of granola bars, crackers, juice, pizza, and eating just a little bit of fruit and whole grains, to eating a more balanced and healthy diet, things like chickpeas, healthy protein, green beans, carrots, berries, and a little bit of ice cream. (laughs) And as you can see, a lot of what the work in my life has brought me back to is that one of the most important things that we can do is to cook more. That doesn't mean cook every day, it doesn't mean Spending hours every day in the kitchen which is bringing more of the responsibility of feeding ourselves into our own kitchens and this is my son practicing his knife skills mm-hmm. and yes I do let him use um, my chef's knife because it's so important to use a really good sharp knife um, so he doesn't hack at it and cut himself. Um, spending time in the kitchen is um, always time well spent we know that people who um, Spend more time in the kitchen, more time preparing their own meals, outsourcing less is always going to save money. Restaurants are not cheap. Even the dollar menu, those things add up, the time and the gas to get all these places. More time spent preparing meals will always lead to higher quality, higher intake of vegetables, more salads, more fruits. Family meals. I know it's hard to sit down with your family for dinner, but I think it's important and there's a lot of research to show that it does help A lot of different outcome measures, but this study just came out, a 10-year follow-up, so eating family meals during adolescence was actually protective against obesity during young adulthood, and um, that's a good reason to sit down with your teens, even if they're uh, just texting while they're talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So before I talk more about kids, I want to just take a pause and um, talk about the health and well-being of our future doctors and us as physicians, as people who care for other people. This is a um, slide from the class that I taught last winter here at Dartmouth, and it was a medical culinary elective um, that I taught. Look how happy they are. They just made like this beautiful food. They have free food, right? So they're psyched. But I can tell you that just the impact of collecting people and having sharing a meal, learning skills together, was really powerful for these students. This was actually a gluten-free meal and it was one of their favorites. And they really didn't know a lot about gluten-free eating but had some kind of vague experience with it. We ended up cooking beautiful dinner together and giving some skills that I'm hoping they're using in their daily lives. I think about eating well for ourselves is the sort of put your own oxygen mask on first. You know, we're respons- <laughs> we have such a hard job taking care of other people and it's so much harder to do that when you're not well-fed and if you're eating food that just gives you that sugar high and sugar low It's hard to maintain good focus, it's hard to have good energy um, and it's hard to maintain your own good health. So put your own oxygen mask on first, cook for yourself, feed yourself healthfully um, because it matters. And not only does it matter to your own health and well-being, but it matters in how then you present yourself to patients. So there's been a lot of really interesting studies on this, but valuing your own health really increases your credibility, increases your likelihood of discussing these issues with your patients. And it really improves the confidence and quality of your advice. So I'm going to be giving um, noon conference today, so all the residents and I will talk a lot in detail about what you can do to improve your own diet and things that you can do to um, increase your own skills. Um, But just think a little bit about it and think about, wow, what could I do to cook a little bit more? What's one recipe? How about a vegetable soup? If you look at one source for recipes, go to the New York Times. They have so many amazing food writers, beautiful pictures, a lot of really thoughtful people adding to that, that knowledge um, that you could go to. And uh, try cooking for a friend, it's really fun. They'll love it. Is there just a couple slides about what you can do if, you, if you're on a, in a rush? I had a whole bunch of slides about breakfast but I had to cut down. So think about what you're eating in the morning, try to give yourself some protein, try to give yourself some fiber. If you're not ready, pack it up, throw it in some foil or make granola, and that recipe is um, on my website. So, drjuliacooks.com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what do we do about these babies, these beautiful babies that really, I love this picture because it really shows these babies are in our hands, and I love this picture with the hand of a parent, and that's what, where we come in. We're really in charge of helping these parents help these babies grow into be beautiful, healthy, wonderful, happy babies, and children, and then onto adulthood. Um, so this should come as no surprise to you, <laughs> but when you're seeing a parent and when you're trying to help them by giving them dietary advice, being judgmental absolutely never helps. <laughs> so you really have to come to the table with an approach um, that's collaborative, that we are all in this together. It is a struggle, it is hard for everyone. And um, so don't ruin your trust and with your patients by making them feel judged or making them feel belittled. People's decisions about food are intensely personal, and people can get very defensive. And so try to approach it um, in a sensitive manner, and just in the manner that it is what it is. It's difficult for all of us. Um, What I found when I'm giving specific advice, general advice, like, oh, eat more fruits and vegetables, blah, 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 it can really not be helpful. I found that when you're giving people tips on how to get around our world and how to feed their children more healthfully, they need suggestions that are, Specific and practical and actionable which gets back to my woman with the coffee so When she learned that her coffee was so loaded with cream and sugar she needed an alternative So we came up with a plan that she would buy hazelnut coffee and add a little bit of nonfat creamer or a little bit of milk and Not only does that get rid of her problem of all these excess calories. It's gonna save her like 13 dollars a week so that's something specific that that person can really act on Um, Boy, we've learned a lot, I think, this year in the press and in the literature about the importance of setting early habits. It's a great study, the infant feeding follow-up study, that um, looked at intake of fruits and vegetables. What's amazing is that intake of fruits and vegetables at one year correlates with that um, intake of fruits and vegetables at six years. So a one-year-old who's eating multiple different kinds of fruits and vegetables will continue that into six years. But if they're not eating vegetables at one, they're much less likely to eat vegetables at six. The same is true when we're setting eating preferences and we're setting the palate of our kids. If we, these kids get um, sugary drinks starting young, they will continue that practice into their early childhood. Um, oh, this is sort of my buyer beware. I encourage you um, to all really look at the food you're eating yourselves, and also encourage parents. Hey, if you want to, if, you, if you're driving through a donut shop or whatever, take a look and see if you can find out what they have. And, And it's really kind of shocking information. What I am always surprised by is um, the salt and the donuts and the sugar and just the calories. And they seem innocuous, especially with munchkins. Munchkins are these little bites. Munchkins on average have 70 to 80 calories each one and a teaspoon of sugar. So these things that seem innocuous um, can really add up. And so I just want to give you a last few tips about how to um, encourage good healthy habits. So when you're talking about vegetables, It helps to be very specific and it's impossible to really help them change their habits without really knowing what they eat. So really take the time, ask what they're offered, what do they like, what do they not like. Um, For infants especially, frozen vegetables are awesome, they're so cost effective, they're so easy, you can get a squash. um, And adding a little butter and a little salt can go a long way in making vegetables palatable. And I don't mean drowning them in butter, but just just a little bit of added flavor can really be helpful. And so things like squash and broccoli are all great. Um, I think parents really struggle with snacking. And I think that we really need to um, do more work in defining what is a nutritious snack. We're up against goldfish, bunny grams, all of these really energy-dense but nutrient-poor snacks. So help parents redefine what a snack is. Snack doesn't have to be a packaged snack. Snacks should be fruit. Snacks should be vegetables whenever possible. Snacks should be fruit, and snacks should be vegetables. The other thing is dinner can be a snack. What what are you having tonight? Can you divide that up? Um, Do you have leftovers that you could use? Um, Yesterday at my cooking class, we made this beautiful Mexican beans and rice, so flavorful. That's a great snack, and I think people don't often think about those types of dishes to have in the afternoon, but that'll go a much longer way of helping our kids learn to eat healthier foods rather than relying on the packaged goods. And I think parents also really relate to the sugar high and the sugar low slide that I showed. You know, We all kind of can understand that and relate to it. And we, it makes sense with juice or a candy bar, but that also relates to things like crackers. So I don't know if you've ever picked up anybody from daycare at 5 o'clock when they've had uh, goldfish and juice two hours earlier. They are all starving, and they are all melting down. All the sugar and carbohydrates they got two hours ago, it's long gone. And they're really ready for their next meal. Um, Setting healthy drinking habits is really important. So, really, milk and water only, I think the easiest way to deal with juice is just not to have it in the house. It's way too tempting and and difficult to manage. And explain that juice is really risky. It looks healthy, it looks innocuous, but it's really not. Um, And review sugar content, be very specific. Oh, what kind of juice, what kind of pouches do you like? Let's look into that. Um, And I think visits should always be ending on a good note and acknowledge that feeding a baby and a child is feeding them well, it's such hard work and takes a lot of commitment, um, but it will pay off. Um, And so to summarize, this world is very complex and difficult. Changing your own diet can really help your own health as well as the advice that you give to um, your families and really supporting parents and especially those of infants and preschoolers. It's really, it's such an important investment in the future of our children. And those are mine. (laughs) Thank you. and I'd be happy to take questions if there are any.
0: Yeah. So um, I noticed that the Avon hand they have the calories right. Oh, yeah. There I um, and I am less likely to buy something, but I'm more likely to go there because I know the calories right there. It's really easy. So is there any data or are there any data of how that's affected sales, I imagine it's there's not that many restaurants that put it right there where you can see it. There are some restaurants that have on the
2: menu. Yeah, and they're actually supposed to. And when I looked at actually the letter of the law in 2010, the FDA passed, there was a law that said that if you have 20 or more restaurants, you have to post calorie information for standard menu items. But I think that the rollout of that, the enforcement of that has a long lead time. So if you go to some, in some places you'll go, like if you go to the airport in New York City, Ben and Jerry's post how many calories are in their ice cream. Dunkin' Donuts post how much is in a munchkin. Um, So the rollout of that is slow. The data is not great yet about um, that type of information. So there was one study that showed that it was really ambivalent about whether or not it affected um, habits of choice. I can tell you from the restaurant industry, they know and you might have noticed that they used to post, like, this is heart healthy. That's, it totally decreased sales of those items. So they stopped giving that information. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I actually met the director of the Oban pans, and He works in Boston at a conference. He was like, oh, yeah, it's unbelievable. You know, you tell them it's good, and I'm like, yeah, I'll take something else. <laughs> so it's, very, it's a very complex, but it's a great question. There's not great data about how much it influences consumer behavior. And I'm sure that the food companies know a lot more about that than, than I do. Oh. What's your
1: view on organic, true organic over, because you
2: haven't mentioned anything. Oh, over. yes, thank you for bringing that up. Oh my gosh, and I was gonna do a slide because that's a great question. Um, boy, organic is, organic versus conventional is a huge um, economic difference. I do think that um, organic foods are really important, and I think the best, there's a website, boy, and I can't remember it right now, there's a website, do you know it off the top of your head? It's like the Environmental Protection that has a great website about what are the top items that you should really look for organic, because I think if you can really focus your spending on, the they're more likely to be contaminated with pesticides and toxic chemicals, um, you can really know, okay, bananas are okay, but strawberries, I really should spend that extra dollar. And I'm sorry, I don't know the website off the top of my head, but it'll come to me as soon as you leave. It's EWG.org. Thank you, Environmental Working Working Group, (laughs) thank you. EWG.org, but it's a great resource. Yeah.
1: Julie, thanks for a great talk. I was impressed by your uh, story about coffee. I think I can one-up you, though. My McDonald's coffee comes with a free coupon for a, a quarter pounder with cheese. Oh, <laughs> unbelievable.
0: <laughs> wow, it's crazy.
1: What about artificial sweeteners? What do you tell your patients about?
2: Oh, well, that is... Diet, it, diet it, sodas and such. Yes, well, oh, my God, I think diet sodas are horrible. There's a lot of data about how bad diet sodas are. I think that the, the biggest thing I tell patients, is it makes them more thirsty. They're so acidic. There was a great poster I saw once that showed the, the various acidity levels of these sodas, and you know, Pepsi, diet Pepsi, they're they're right under battery acid. <laughs> so diet sodas are hard for people to get rid of. They're um, they just don't offer anything nutritionally, is what I say. And um, and they really make, they actually don't help with waking. There's a great study on giving people diet soda versus regular soda for a week. There was no difference in their weight change. I'm oh, not sorry, for a month. Um, so diet, so, so artificial sweeteners. That's a great topic. Um, there was just a study. I don't know if you saw recently about um, about feeding artificial sweeteners to mice, and that it actually induced glucose intolerance in, rice in mice by changing their gut flora. So I think it's something that we'll learn a lot about. I don't think they're. I think that you should eat sugar in moderation or other sweeteners, but I think um, artificial sweetened products are probably good to stay away from.
1: Um, you know, the top of one of your slides is all about the toxic environment. Oh, yes. And uh, it sounds like you're um, encouraging us, it's appropriate to arm our patients and families with tools to that they can individually make good choices despite the toxic environment. What's the low-hanging fruit that we can get involved with to actually change
2: the toxic environment? Thank you so much. That's a great question. I think the low-hanging fruit are... Um, so to speak. Yes, <laughs> the, the low-hanging sugar-sweetened beverage. Um, so I think that the things that we can do as physicians um, and as parents are getting involved in the community, and I actually I know and I should mention that there's, as you know, it's great to see changes in the cafeterias here, so inc- improving the environment bit by bit, Take, getting rid of sugar-sweetened beverages, getting rid of fry-laters, um, school lunches, boy, that really, kids are getting so many of their so much of their food at school, and that those meals aren't what they need to be, really should be improved. And I think it's a really tricky topic, but getting involved with schools and really helping schools to provide um, fewer sugar-sweetened beverages and more fruits and vegetables. Um, uh, There's so much fruit that's (laughs) not low-hanging, but I think, you know, really um, the, the big ticket items, and I think really encouraging parents to eat more at home the environment for restaurant eating is so bad. So the more that we can eat at home, the more that we can stay away from those types of foods and not not encourage and and make healthier choices. So based on what you just said, it seems like there's not a lot that can be changed. So what I focus on with families and I'm just wondering your opinion on it is sort of parenting strategies to deal oh, with yeah. all of the, but I want the ice cream and I, yeah. I want more of the juice and I think that we have parents in this generation that are giving their kids everything they want. Yes. Yeah. And it's really hard to say, yeah, your friends might have a go-gurt every day in their lunch. Yeah. And you're never going to get a go-gurt in your lunch. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up because that was a slide I wanted to add, but Sholene wouldn't let me. Um, so parenting and all this stuff, you know, navigating and moving your way through life and with your child, it you need to be so proactive about it. And it's really, truly a parenting issue, as you mentioned. It's how do you set your kids up for success? And how do you set your family up for when you go to the bank, when you go to Best Buy to replace your GPS, you're not left with a nagging child or a child that's carrying a Coke in their hand? And so this is what you need to do. You need to have a plan. You're sitting in the parking lot. We're going into Best Buy, kids. I have a feeling that there's going, going to be junk food there. We're going to buy a GPS, and we're buying only a GPS. And don't ask me. <laughs> And really being proactive in advance. We're going to the bank, we're not doing lollipops. Here's going to be our treat, this is what we're doing. Whatever the treat is. And being very clear with your kids. I am in charge of your body right now. When you are 18 and you want to eat Lucky Charms for breakfast, and I'm sure you will, you can do that every day. Right now, this is my watch. And I know I make decisions you don't like, but I'm in charge of your health. So we're going to go to the store. And we're going to come out with things. And I don't want to be nagged for things. And I can tell you, it's not that I'm a bad person. I'm in charge of making your body big and strong. And these are things that don't make your body big and strong. These are foods that hurt you. And I'm not going to buy them because I love you. And I love this beautiful body that we've created. And this is how I need to help make you healthy. And it's not easy. But planning in advance, anticipating, and saying what you're going to do in advance helps your own mindset. And then helps when you're in that situation. You can say, what was our deal? This is our deal. and nag me again and we're out of here. And not giving in to the nagging the third time because that, of course, sends message of just keep asking and I'll give in. Mm-hmm. But thank you for bringing that up. It's just parenting.
0: So you
1: mentioned the food labels and sugars not having a percent oh, uh, yeah.
2: daily value. I forgot to tell you why. Sure enough,
1: actually, uh, <laughs> when, you you, uh, when you look at the nutritional science, fats probably get more bad rap out of proportion to yes. how bad they are versus sugars. How much of that have you seen evidence the fact that there's a sugar lobby and there's no fat lobby, per
2: se. Yeah, yeah. It's really the sugar lobby that didn't want the um, the sugars. Because if you have a Coke uh, and it says it's 200% of your daily value of sugar, they all, of course, believe that you're going to be less likely to buy that product. So that's the reason that we don't have a um, any good guidelines on sugar on that food label. Um, so I encourage you to think about and talk amongst yourselves or talk with your parents. You know what? Um, 20 grams a day is enough. You know, set your own. Set, set your own for the kids because you know that's not unreasonable. Is it is it is it
1: too far to remind people that the food label, which is all we have, has to be taken as a grain of salt. <laughs> and that it is a USDA body and it yes. is influenced by the who, who can influence the process by which those are developed.
0: Absolutely.
2: Thank so, you for mentioning that. Athlete.
0: Um, thanks for that talk Julia, it was really good. I was
2: wondering how you balance out the healthy eating message. And I, I will say I have a bias because I do a lot of
0: adolescent medicine. Hmm. So I have those teenagers who did oh, have yeah. parents who were super strict about what they put in their body yeah. to care for their beautiful body when yeah. they're 2, 3, and then they do get to 18 and they do one of two things. They either eat Lucky Charms pizza and beer as well a <laughs> primary diet yeah. in college, or they go the opposite direction and really have a very restricted eating pattern uh, or, uh, uh, orthorexia, they only will eat healthy foods and get completely stressed out and wind up with a disordered eating pattern where they won't have a little
2: bit of haagen dazs ice cream every right. and then because having dazs ice cream tastes really good and it's fun to eat with your family. Yeah. So I was wondering how you balance that message as kids are growing up through adolescence. With my patients or with my own kids? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> I'm right
0: in there with him, so. Well,
2: I actually just listened to a great podcast uh, from the Rudd Center about this exact phenomenon. Um, there's a couple things about restrictive and controlling parenting is actually shown to worsen obesity. So the more you're controlling, the more that you're like, absolutely not. So I think presenting things in a way, and I, I may come across as a little more restrictive, but when you offer foods, hey, this is what we're eating. If you like it, you can try it. If you not, you don't have to eat it. Um, and not ruling out things that are fun and delicious to eat. But just knowing they can't be an everyday thing—they they're not. This isn't something that we do day after day after day. We eat pizza. We just don't eat it three times a week. Um, so what the podcast <coughs> taught me is that the research shows that kids who have lived in other, whether healthy eating environments, une- not healthy eating environments. This is a college study. When they go to college, all of their diets get really bad, <laughs> <laughs> and they're not worse from one. Set of parenting practices to another. So all adolescent and young adult diets will decline. Then they all come up slowly, and I do think people end up gravitating back towards the diet that was instituted in the family. So I think that's reassuring. That as long as we're not too overly restrictive, that and getting giving good messages, that yes, they're all going to drink pizza or eat, eat pizza, drink beer, and their diets will all decline in early adulthood. But they're all they will rise back to a setting a normal.
1: So um, next week we continue our digestive health um, theme, Christopher Duggan from Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard School of Public Health over here. And uh, so we're thinking we're in that mindset about healthy eating, so thanks very much for putting that here. Yeah,
0: thank you. <laughs>